podcast. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Sophie with my weekly podcast. Hope everyone is doing well and learning as we go every week because these are pretty interesting things. We pick up topics that you would never think really mean a whole lot, but when we dig deeper into it, we really see how the connections into our lives, into our brains and our hearts, and how they translate into our everyday. So it's really interesting. And last week we talked about facing our fears, and it was really very interesting to see really the evolution of the fear response within us, how it translates out, what really triggers it, where the origination of of fear comes from. So take a listen if you haven't, because it's really quite impactful to help really give you that understanding and the ability to begin to move past fears if they are really stopping your life. So they're all online, and that's at www.drsophie.com. And I invite all of you to constantly listen to all of these things and always call in 24-7 to my hotline, which is one eight five five sophie now or one eight five five seven six seven four nine six six. I would like to hear from you at any time about anything, but specifically when we're talking about a topic for the week, I'll send it out by Twitter and Facebook, and I'd like to hear back what your thoughts are and what you want to know more about. But today, we have some really great experts on, and we're going to be talking about some concepts that most people probably don't even understand really where they come from, how they impact our life. What are they? So we're talking today about sympathy and empathy. Do you know what they are? Are they part of your everyday life? And what do you do if you really don't feel them? Kind of scary, I think. But today we're going to have some great experts on trying to answer some of these questions, taking some live calls, some voicemails, emails, and I'd like to hear from you as well at one eight five five sophie now or one eight five five seven six seven four nine six six. Every caller will receive a free signed copy of my book, Side by Side, the Mother-Daughter Conflict Resolution Book, and again, who doesn't need that? All right, give me a call, one eight five five sophie now one eight five five seven six seven four nine six six. We're talking empathy and sympathy. So I, I, just a little quick talk. I want to get a little into sympathy and empathy before I bring somebody on. Really, what is the difference between the two of them? And for me, I think the simplest way to understand it is empathy really looks at like the personal side of yourself, the understanding that you have a feeling because you have experienced something yourself. So if you're feeling sad because your friend, your partner, whoever has lost a parent maybe in death, you're able to access a certain feeling because you have experienced that yourself. Sympathy, on the other hand, is a little bit different, and that is from one person to another. That is understanding that the person that you're feeling and you have this feeling for because you've been in that situation before. So empathy is the feeling like as the incident of the, the death of, of someone, and it's your friend's parent. Empathy is what you personally feel because you've lost a parent before and you know that. And sympathy is what you feel for your friend, partner, or whoever who has just lost somebody. So empathy is the feeling you feel. Sympathy is the feeling you will feel but for the other person. So I just want to put that out there as the basic understanding between the two so that as we bring on these wonderful experts, we're able to really understand it from that standpoint. And my first expert is Dr. Stephanie Preston. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Michigan, where I'm sure they're glad it's not going to be wintertime anymore. She has some really interesting research that she'll probably be talking about, and if she doesn't, I'm going to ask her. It's really based from her ecological neuroscience lab, and she uses an approach to study the interface between emotion and decision-making. 
And the two main lines of her research are, number one, how do people access and process the emotions of others? So how do you feel, process, think, feel, whatever, when you're watching someone else have an emotion? And how does this affect the amount and the type of help you want to offer them? So it's really interesting. So when you see somebody, I guess, that's sad or crying, happy, whatever, what does that do to you as the person? And then how does that determine how much you're going to reach to that other person and help? And the other arm of her research is how do people make decisions about giving out resources like food, money, and material goods? Like what is it that's triggered inside of you when you see a homeless person to either say no or yes? So I want to introduce Dr. Stephanie Preston. We're going to pick her brain a little bit and take a call or an email with her. Stephanie, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you, Dr. Sophie? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for taking the time today to join us. Oh, sure. It's my pleasure. So tell me a little bit about your research and then about how that connects to sympathy and empathy from your understanding. Oh, well, you did an excellent job summarizing everything so far. Um, I'd say right on with everything you said. And one thing that we are interested in is what we call the perception-action model of empathy. So we assume people have the capacity to feel with another person. Like a quick um, summary of what you said is empathy is feeling with somebody and sympathy is feeling sorry for someone. Um, So you can feel with somebody. How does that happen? How are we able to do that? And it's because we believe you have a neural system designed to activate parts of your brain and your body circuits for experiencing emotions when you observe other people's emotions. Ah. So when I see you smile, it triggers in my brain in the process of decoding your expression, partially the neurons that are used to activate my own smile muscle and distributed representations of memories of happiness and times when people smiled. So the extent to which I can understand and feel with you is exactly proportional to the extent to which my brain has been trained up in my prior experiences to be able to relate to that. Interesting. So you're saying then really the foundation of a lot of those responses are from life experiences? Well, there's, life experiences are very important, but there's a couple caveats that you have to keep in mind. So, for example, everybody, for the most part, has some basic experiences of happiness, of sadness. So you can still understand and feel some of this emotion and activate these overlapping neural systems just right. from observing the emotion, even if you haven't had a related experience, because we know what sadness is, even if we don't know that very specific form of sadness. So you're saying, though, that if you just innately know when you see something sad that you're going to have somewhat of a response, whether you had a past life, you know, a life experience of it or not. Correct, because you've had a sad experience, right. even if you haven't had that same experience. Exactly, and that will activate something in your brain. Right, that does part of the work. And then having a similar experience just makes the similarity in these rich representations more likely to be overlapping at a nuanced level. But there's another caveat where what if you had um, a parent die and I had a parent die, but the circumstances were very different or our appraisal or response to the event was very different. Mm -hmm. So if you were sort of stoic about it and accepting and I was traumatized and it took me years of grief to get over it, we wouldn't relate to one another's experience and we wouldn't feel that empathic overlap because the event was experienced differently. But would you feel sympathy? Yes, yes. 
but not empathy, or just empathy not in that way? So, like, in experiments they've done, for example, Sarah Hodges did experiments where the people offered to help more the person who had a similar experience, like divorce or childbirth, but they're not better at understanding and predicting how the other person feels because they might not have felt that same way. So they do kind of offer to help more and they feel more sorry for them, but they're not actually given privileged access to how they feel because they might have had this differential experience. And then in our research, we found if you match people on the appraisal or the extent to which they hold these similar beliefs, you have a very good ability to predict um, who you'll want to help. Is it safe to say then that the more privileged access, which really means the more you've experienced the similar situation, mm-hmm. the yeah. more you're going to tap into your own empathy? Right. It's, it's one and the same, basically. So um, when I see your experience, it automatically sort of downstream activates all of these rich associations and representations I have for the experience, and it just creates this kind of full-blown state of empathy, which is much more powerful and informative and likely to produce helping Somebody than else. a more sparse version like, yes, you're sad, I, I understand sadness in general. Is that similar to like, like I've, I'm sure you've experienced it, I have, many of our listeners have, where they're talking with somebody who's going through, you know, two people that have gotten a divorce. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, one will say something about their ex that triggers an empathic response in the other, because all of a sudden the other's like, I know, I know, I've done that before myself. I, can you believe, you know, yeah. that kind of thing, where it triggers yeah. like that commonality. Yes, and we have written about this in a review paper. A lot of this work was done by my graduate student, Alicia Hofelik. Very nice. And she's done some great work, and we have a review together where we exactly describe this positive sense of sharing that comes from, you know, kind of the sine qua non of empathy in a social relationship is that feeling of, oh, I know, me too. You know, even when you're sharing and it's something negative, you're seeking this sense of somebody else understands me and can relate to this problem. And then the flip side of that is funny, too, because you can go down this garden path and you think, oh, yes, we've both had this experience. And then it turns out the more you describe it, the more dissimilar your experience of the event. And one person says, oh, and don't you think that person is mean or something? And the other person says, oh, no, I felt sorry for them, you know. And so then you can create these divisions, but based on very deep levels of appraisal of the same event. Very interesting. Do you think you can teach these to people? Do you think, yes, I do think you can um, in the sense that call in psychology top-down processing where you actively try to imagine being in the other person's shoes, that's not an automatic process. That's an effortful process, and people don't naturally always engage in it, but I think they're capable of it. And so, so you can train people to, to be more active and vigilant in that way for sure. So you can work that muscle of trying to be empathetic and sympathetic by going through certain situations saying, what would you think and how would you feel if this was you and what do you think and how would you feel if you were that person? Right, right. And And also they have in um, Buddhist practice compassion-based meditation. Right, right. And I think that would be another way by releasing this kind of personal defensive response, you're better able to appraise other people's emotions from a neutral and compassionate standpoint. Okay. So then my other question to you is then, is this the core of why a support group is helpful for someone who may be going through 
breast cancer survivors, the loss of a relative, a, a disease that they may have or something? I do think so. I think a lot of times there are cases where people have undergone something very extreme or traumatic that other people can't relate to, and it's distancing. Even people who want to help, right. they don't know how, and they right. say the wrong things. And so these are other people who can share in those experiences, and you're allowed to feel whatever emotion you want, not just the ones people think are permissible, and make them feel comfortable, right? Okay, right. So I'm going to play devil's advocate. There are many people who would say, but you know what? You put all those people in one room, they're never going to help each other. They're never going to get out of their thing, and they live it. Mm. How do you do that? What do you think about that? Is that healthy? Is it? Is there got to be a? Is that why there's a leader to kind of move it forward and have an endpoint and an outcome? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, my impression is that with some of these groups, they're short term in order to get people out of a very bad place back to where they can be in a regular daily life. Um, for example, in, after grief or an illness or something. Right. But whereas Alcoholics Anonymous or something like that, where you would, where people continue to go for life, or like right. Weight Watchers actually advocates for people to go to this group setting forever. <laughs> because exactly. otherwise, exactly. It's, if you don't come that week, you're going to slip out. And right. I think it's very specific to the individual, whether they need and benefit from that or not. So some people can learn the strategies, adopt them in life, and then stop coming. And some people have to come regularly for this reminder. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think, you know, like your your brain sometimes needs constant resetting or reminders. How many times have we learned a good skill and then sort of lost it and had to remind ourselves? So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to have to continue, and some individuals might need that. I, I, and I totally agree. So, I mean, but it does have to be limited. Right. I find this stuff to be really fascinating because I don't think many people really dig deep into their thoughts about this stuff or really understand those automatic responses or a lack thereof. What do you think? I think one thing that's interesting is that the perception action model, there's actually, it's, it's a very old model that comes from hundreds of years ago and is, is repeatedly mentioned in philosophy and in psychology, but there wasn't that much experimental data for it up until now. And you get a lot of actual pushback from people who don't like this view of empathy because they want to imagine it to be a process that they engage in intellectually right, and right. only humans are capable of this high feat of compassionate, you know, moral behavior. But in fact, you can observe rodents and mice showing empathy and they have recent research on that and there's research from the 50s on rodents and monkeys showing empathy. And so I think there are some parts of our nervous system that are hardwired or genetically encoded to allow for beautiful social interactions to occur automatically without much intellectual effort. But I think for some people that feels strange to try on. I yeah. Think. How, are you open to taking a uh, live caller? Sure. Uh, I think on the line, uh, Dr. Preston, we have Lisa. Okay. Lisa, you there? I'm here. We'll Sorry, take a live call. Discussion. How are you? <laughs> Good, thank you. Thanks for calling in. No problem. My question was, I'm in a marriage with a spouse who seems to have zero empathy and um, sympathy, and it's hard because I feel like I'm trying to get him to be empathetic, but it's creating a lot of problems, so I don't know if it's something that you can work on to try to get the person to create, you know, well, have that empathy. Tell me, I mean, how do we know that you're just not that ex-wife? You he know. just doesn't. 
he doesn't have compassion you know when like, hurting like is he is he not feeling something or responding in a way towards something you do or you say or you it's that not you just towards me it could be a, a stranger it could be the lack of empathy for the homeless person that you walk by well like do you have any issues like if you go out to eat to a restaurant or you order you know food like you see him treating people in a way that's not comfortable for you is that it, what you're saying yeah exactly it's just always with disrespect and there's no empathy for the person that has less than him or isn't on his level. And, and it's concerning. It's like, like a moral compass. Dr. Preston, what do you think? There are many dimensions of empathy, and they all exist on an individual differences spectrum. So perspective-taking is something some people do naturally more than others. The capacity to feel sort of contagious emotion from others is also something that differs incredibly across individuals. And there's a lot of different reasons that this occurs. Sometimes people are perfectly capable of feeling empathic emotion, but they actively avoid feeling that way. So Why? They don't, because they don't want to be distressed by another person's distress. Well, wait, let's stop there for a minute. So you're saying, because this is great stuff, this is, you're saying there's this span, like a spectrum of emotion, of empathy. So it could be little empathy, no empathy, a lot of empathy. Mm-hmm. And some people... Do they consciously hold that back, or are they just not capable of tapping into it? Well, there's different forms of it. So in one form, you have it, but you've learned strategies to avoid people and things and situations that are going to activate it because it's uncomfortable. And you've learned them, you've learned them unconsciously, or mommy and daddy taught you those? It's some of both, but you can do it without any conscious effort. So sort of like you see the homeless man, and your eyes just naturally dart the other way uh. so that... Because you don't want to be in discomfort. Right. But isn't there a difference if your spouse is actively asking you to help that person, so now it's brought to your attention, you can't just avoid it, but you still decide that I'm not, you know. Right. So, so then there's them. other versions. One version is, you know, you have cultural differences in the degree to which people think others are responsible for their own behavior. So if you have a belief that it's every man for himself and you should really take care of yourself, then you don't have a moral obligation in that situation the way somebody who feels we have a collective responsibility for one another feels I am responsible. So typically people don't feel the urge to respond to help someone unless they sense they include the other in their self-concept in some way. Why would they not include somebody? Is it usually because it creates too much pain or a feeling that's discomforting, or is it because they just don't realize there's other human beings on the planet who have feelings. I mean, is that the line that would cross over to maybe, you know, antisocial personality stuff? Right. So both of those forms exist. One form exists where I'm perfectly capable of acting empathically in a situation I deem as relevant. Right. But I don't deem these other situations as relevant, like the homeless person or the waiter, to me, are not deserving of that response. But then there are sociopathic spectrum disorders where, you know, Simon Baron Cohen writes books about this, and males have a higher tendency towards this than females. And it's kind of associated with this autism spectrum disorders where they both have an empathy sort of base impairment, where they don't naturally feel the emotions of the other people. And even within that disorder, there's sub-disorders where you have a reactive type that aggresses out and just a cold type that's more like the cold-blooded killer, you know? Right. So I think I have that one. (laughs) (laughs) um, Well, you should go through with that divorce then, Lisa. 
<laughs> empathy is multifaceted, and so each one of these facets can be broken on its own and produce slightly different variants of lacking empathy. So it really depends. And only when the person is really directly causing harm to other people, that becomes a problem. And, you know, obviously therapy helps some people in that situation. And okay. So, I mean, Lisa, I would hang up and call that attorney. Because it sounds <laughs> yes. kind of scary. I mean, you have a lot of those. I mean, is this just a sporadic thing? Yeah, I don't thing think or? it's anything that can be tapped into. I, I really do think it's just the person that doesn't have that ability. Do you see it consistently across the board, in the house, out of the house, at that it's at with every, yeah, work it's, situation, personal? Exactly. So, I mean, thank you so much. You're welcome. If you need more information, just hit, uh, hit us back. But really, that's pretty impactful. <laughs> I, I have sympathy and empathy for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. It is actually very difficult to interact with people who don't have empathic responses. So like people with frontotemporal dementia, I'm sure you've seen, and they just aren't capable anymore of producing compassionate responses because of their neural damage to the um, medial frontal cortex. And their spouses are always extremely disturbed by that kind of change more than a physical impairment right, like a right, handicap. Right, because right, they've lost their connection and don't feel loved, cared right. for, vice versa. Right. But if it's not, you know, from a brain issue like that, it is really difficult to probably live with somebody like that and interact with them when they're not feeling anything that you're kind of tapping into for yourself when you see something and they're not feeling it for themselves either because they haven't either tapped into that response or they have a learned way to cut it off. And like we said, the sense of feeling understood seems very critical to people's feeling of well-being. and Well, absolutely, and a connection to a relationship. Yeah. What's really disturbing is that when one of these types of people are parenting, because how do you ever get to your child and convey that kind of stuff if you don't ever tap into it yourself? Well, and I think that's an important point that this neural system for feeling others' emotions does depend on your early developmental experience. Right, right. So children of mothers with depression end up differently. People with different attachment disorders have different capacities for empathy. So if you have this and you raise a child, then you set them up to be incapable of feeling other states as well. Um, and it right. kind of goes in a chain. It's really interesting because I think, you know, when Lisa listens back at this, I don't know, maybe she's still there hearing us, that if you look back, I would want to look at that man's parenting and see what was that like, what's the mom like, is the father the same way? And, mm-hmm. you know, and I think if you kind of see, there's certain cultures that seem more cut off and cold emotionally, but I think that's a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And then that's how the beat keeps going on because each generation is parented by that kind of person. That's right. Interesting. Yeah. So, doctor, tell me a little bit about you and where we can find you and learn about all your great research. Well, I have a website at the University of Michigan at worldwideweb.umich.edu forward slash tilde prestos. Prestos is not my last name, but it's a variant of my first and last name. Ah, got it. Um, so I keep, we try to keep our publications updated on the web, and hopefully in the next year or two we'll come out with a more accessible book form of some of these thoughts. Till then. <laughs> we'll, we'll have you back. <laughs> yeah. But I good. think your work is tremendous. Thank you for such a simple and great understanding and in-depth look at this kind of stuff because it, it is a fascinating part of the human development and emotional makeup, and I don't think many people look at it. So thank you very much. Thank you. Very interesting talk with Dr. Stephanie Preston. She's a 
assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Michigan. She talked about some of her research in tapping into people's emotions, what triggers those emotions, what triggers our response to those emotions. For instance, when we see someone who is in a bad spot, do we feel something because we've experienced that bad spot as well, or that bad spot just kind of makes us feel sad? And then what do we do about that? Do we reach a hand to them, emotional, physical, financial, whatever? So that's a lot of her research, and it can be found on her website at the University of Michigan, and it's www.personal.umich.edu slash prestos, P-R-E-S-T-O-S. So she's got a lot of good information, and she said about a year she'll be out with a book explaining this in terms that we can all understand and learn from. So that was Dr. Stephanie Preston. I think the interesting thing is that, and we'll talk to our next expert a little bit more about kind of those early childhood experiences and where those building blocks of empathy and sympathy come from, because obviously every one of us are born with a brain that functions from a genetic way, half mom, half dad. But the bottom line is the experiences that that brain then experiences in life, the everyday, the parenting, the nurturing, the lack thereof, the trauma, whatever it is, it shapes that brain and it shapes the way chemicals move and flow and all that stuff. And then you have bad experiences, you have good experiences that then dictate how you're going to relate to the rest of the world. So I want to talk to our next expert about some of this stuff in the early childhood. And joining me now is is, uh, David Levine. He is a teacher, trainer, facilitator, author, and musician. It's probably easier to say what he's not. Pretty, (laughs) Pretty talented man who has made an indelible impact on students, I'm sure. Um, He's already doing it to me. I'm intimidated. He's taught elementary, middle school. He was the uh, chief trainer for the U.S. Department of Education's Northeast Regional Center for Safe and Drug-Free Schools for four years. That's really interesting. And internationally renowned for using music as a catalyst for meaningful dialogue. David, are you there? I am here. Yes, I am, Dr. Sophie. Welcome. I'm very good. Where are you at? Thank you very much. What part of the world are you living I am about two hours north of New York City in the Hudson River Valley. Oh, very nice. Yes, it is. I'm very close to the town of Woodstock, which I'm sure listeners have heard of. Yes. Um, So tell me a little bit about what your connection to sympathy and empathy is and how you see it all. Well, my work, you know, you mentioned initially um, or in the little introduction that I use music for dialogue. And I, I was raised by musicians, and the music was I, when I was growing up, I thought it was, you know, a cool thing to play. You know, I play acoustic instruments, and I thought it was cool to play and, and jam and stuff. And when I was growing up, people would visit my parents, and, and I would, you know, play with them. They were older than me. And as I got older, I looked back, and I realized that the music was really a catalyst for, for connection. Multi-generational, they were always inviting me to play with them. It didn't matter how good you were. It just mattered that you were sharing this experience with other people who were encouraging and nurturing to me. So it was much more significant than I was realizing as a child growing up. And so when I became a teacher, I wanted to use music in my classroom, not as like an entertainment factor or as one girl in a workshop once asked me, you know, are you going to do self-esteem sing-along feel-good songs? <laughs> right. You know, it wasn't for that purpose, but it was to make connections with kids about what's really happening in their lives. So I sort of, you know, accidentally unearthed this, this doorway to meaningful conversation with children about the social challenges they face. You know, I would find songs or write songs that had that impact. And there was one song in particular 
that I came across, um, which was written by a guy named Lee Doman. And it's a true story about a boy who is the classic ostracized child. You know, mm. he's different, he's poor, yeah. you know, he's completely alienated and isolated. And the, the viewpoint of the song, it's a ballad, is through the eyes of the bystander. You know, he wants to help him, but he's afraid of losing his friends if he did so. Right. And so I heard that song, and it, it just was so, it brought me right back to all my emotions growing up, and also the, the feelings that I had for my students and children I saw in the school. So I started using that song initially with my own class, and then over time in workshop sessions with students. And one day, Back in the late 80s, I was about to do a, a pretty typical lesson for me. I sang the song. We were going to brainstorm why kids are treated poorly, why they're made fun of or put down. And in that moment, I had this thought of writing the word empathy on mm. a sheet of paper. I had no idea where this came from. Yeah. It was a hit, and I wrote it down, and I, I surrounded it with a box, and I said, look at that word, and imagine that's a picture, and the word is in the picture, and everybody has their own picture of the world. And empathy is the ability to see inside someone else's picture and understand it. And that was the beginning of mm. my work, seeing empathy as a critical you know, social skill and relationship skill for children and teachers and anyone who works with kids in schools. That is so cool. Good for you. Thank you for doing that. Oh, thank you. So how has it translated out then into your everyday? Do you utilize it regularly? Well, you know, first of all, in my work, I, I work in schools every day with students and teachers and school leaders and with parents. And, um, you know, there's such a concern with, of course, the issue of bullying and other aggressive forms of behavior, antisocial behaviors. And I've always felt from the earliest days of doing this work that empathy, you know, is the opposite of aggression or hurting another person. You know, it's the essence of, of a tender sort of vibration, um, like when you see a baby, you know, or even a puppy, you know, it, it sort of brings out that, oh, like there's a, an openness and a purity. And I try to bring that into schools on multiple levels to create what I call emotionally safe schools. Talk to me a little bit about what that connection is for you between, you know, an emotionally safe school and your kids and their connection and aggression, because I think aggression is what people see a lot of times. And how is that connected to empathy? Well, you know, if you were to look at the pretty typical response that many schools, uh, policymakers use, uh, even in state legislatures, um, even in our federal government, when they make laws about bullying, right? right. It's about anti, it's anti-bullying. And it's very coercive, in my opinion, and it's very punitive. And there's an it's almost like bullying people not to bully. Right. And and it creates this sense of, you know, fear, and it also creates a sense of secrecy around it, because it's like, you better not do this. And I see empathy as being a whole other realm of infusion into the school culture. And, and that's really where I'm concerned with, because, you know, I am a parent, and I have my own children, and I can certainly, you know, impact, of course, the way my wife and I communicate with them. Right. But in the community at large, the place where you know you're going to find children every day is a school. So I've invested my focus on the school culture, what happens in schools, what they do. And it's really about relationships. Ah, tell you know, me, tell me. Bullying, I, I guess I might be singing your song here because I'm just sensing that. Because bullying is an antisocial behavior. And it's often demonstrated by someone 
who is needing to or wanting or their need for connection is not or belonging is not there. And they don't have the social skills to make healthy connections. So they behave in such a way to try to find their place Mm. and it becomes an antisocial act, right? Mm. So what happens in schools is if you're not seeing things, if you're like an adult, let's say, seeing things through the lens of empathy, like where's that child coming from? What are they feeling? Let's not label them as the bully, the bad kid. Let's look at them as a child who is in development. They're not complete. And what are they saying through their behavior? And empathy as an adult, as a teacher, as a teaching assistant, a principal, bus driver, all the significant adults in their school lives, empathy can be the lens or the, the approach to begin to decode those behaviors. Like, well, what are they saying? What do they need? Let's, let's focus on that and give them the pro-social skills or the social skills that might be lacking. And the, the ultimate one, the empathic skill is listening, non-judgmentally. Right. And, and do you think there's a brain component going on with that as well? Well, I'm not, I'm not a, a neuroscientist, but uh, many people I know, many people I work with have been you know, teaching me about what happens in the brain when you're practicing empathy. Right. And, and, it's, and, and you probably know better than I do, but, um, and so I can only put it in, in layman's terms. But I think, you know, I, what I, here's, well, let me put it this way. You know, I try to break it down to very simple forms for children. You know, because if, if I work with children... If anyone works with kids and tries to tell them, here's what you have to do. You must do this. You must do that. Forget it. For, exactly. Right. That ain't going to work. If you, but if you have authentic dialogue, relevant conversation, right. and, you ta- and so you look at the realities of the social challenges they face, making friends, you know, whatever. And, and even, you know, I do this with little ones too, you know, pre-K, kindergartners, where we talk about friendship skills, et cetera. But when, when I'm in, in these conversations with them, you know, I put it pretty simple. I said, you know, when you do something nice for someone, it feels good, you know. And when something happens and, it's, and it hurts the person's feelings, uh, they feel bad, that doesn't feel good, you know. So right. when you're in that moment of choice, check in with yourself. And I teach them. You know, I actually I talk about empathy in my conversations with children as really a heart skill. I look at the word courage. We talk about, you know, corazón in Spanish means heart, and right. courage means a heartful right. choice. So I have them, and I, and I do this, you know, whether I do a lot of work in the Bronx and New York City, you know, so some really poor socioeconomic communities, and 20 minutes up the road in Scarsdale, New York, one of the wealthiest communities in the country, same issues. So I have them connect to themselves, and I, yeah. I, I actually do this. I, I make a kinesthetic experience. I have them touch their heart. And I say, that is your indicator of are you making a choice that is going to feel good or making a choice that's going to feel bad? You know, that's such and, great work that you're doing, honestly, because if you don't show them those things, they're not going to get the stuff that we talk to them about from a neuroscience standpoint or a chemical standpoint and trauma standpoint. I think it's that everyday stuff that you're doing and those kinds of reminders of touching your heart and connecting. It's amazing. And they're life Thank tools. You. Do you realize that? You're giving these children life tools that will they'll remember when they're getting married. They'll remember when they're raising their children. That is certainly my goal. In fact, I really believe, you know, I'll put it in this context. I remember we have, I said I have a couple of children. My one son, Sam, he's, uh, he's 11 right now. And my other son, Gideon, is 8. And when, when Gideon was on the way, right, so Sam was like 3 years old, 
And we had been doing family bed, you know, attachment parenting, family bed. And I was, I was teaching Sam, you know, you're going to be more often than not in your own bed when the baby comes, right? So Ooh, I bet you didn't like that. Well, no. But I said to my wife, Jody, you know, if we allow Gideon in our bed, which we will as an infant, I'm not going to kick Sam out. That's not fair, and it's a confusing message, right? So I, I had Sam, we, we practiced this. You know, I, we went in, his bedroom was right across the hall. I had him pretend he was sleeping, and he wakes up. And I said, when you wake up, and I walked across the hall with him, and I walked around the bed, and I said, and you very gently tap on my shoulder and wake me up, and I'll come and I'll lay down with you. And we practiced it, right? So my wife pulls me over, and she says, David, she's not, he's not going to remember that. That's, I said, you know, I think he will. And sure enough, that night, I wake up, and he's tapping my shoulder. He's like, Daddy, come to bed. I'm Just like I told him, right? Right. So my, point is, my point is that it's the same way of thinking. When we name the world for children, and we put it in very real-life conversational tone that's relevant to them, they're going to remember it. Because and, they feel it. Absolutely. I, what I say, you know, this is all about uh, empathy is about energy, and energy is about emotion. And we all have emotional needs, and they drive our choices. They drive they our behavior. Definitely right? do. They definitely do. Will you take a voicemail with me from one of yeah, our, our uh, listeners? Hold on. Sure. Uh, hey, Dr. Sophie. This is Bill, and I have a, a story for you on today's topic of, of empathy. It's a story I heard years ago, but it has stuck with me ever since, and it involves a, a friend of mine whose mother was um, awfully self-absorbed, and he told the story that when good friends of his parents announced they were getting a divorce, and um, this mother was friends with both of the, the couple. Um, they were very close friends. But when she learned that the couple was getting a divorce, her response was, oh, now it's going to be so difficult for me to decide who to invite to dinner parties and who I should socialize with and how I should try to balance socializing with each of them, which struck me and my friend as being an incredibly selfish view and not the least bit of empathy about the divorce and what her friends were going through, but instead it became all about, oh, how does this affect me now that my friends are no longer a couple? So I'd appreciate your thoughts on the topic. Thank you. Interesting. So what do you think? Well, as I was listening, I, I, I think he named it himself in the beginning and at the end, right. an incredibly self-absorbed you know, response to that situation. But you know, kids, I think, are more naturally empathic. Uh, they picked up that, wow, what a self, selfish response. Well, know? in your workings and your, your developing and, and interacting so much, do you see children who have a pretty good baseline of empathy, sympathy, and it gets derailed by something? Or do you see children that don't have it? I think the majority of children come into this world with empathy. I think it's a natural inclination. I mean, if you are familiar, for instance, with the work of Daniel Goleman. In his first book that was most known, you know, Emotional Intelligence, he speaks of, you know, the toddler who's in a play date and the other toddler starts crying for some reason. And the, the immediate response is to either start crying along with him or her or go get mommy or daddy and bring them to that child because that's his system of the world. Like when I cry, they comfort me. I'll get that thing that comforts that child. They feel that's empathy. They feel what that kid's feeling. I think it does become derailed. I think what happens is, and if you look at the this is this is the thing I'm most concerned about with schools today. When you said before you expressed your appreciation, I really appreciated you saying that because these areas of social skills, right, um, man, managing emotions, right, empathy, pro-social skills, 
although every teacher and every administrator will speak in a you know one-to-one conversation how important it is, that's not what they focus on. In they, the they can't, exactly, but tell us why. I mean, it's been in place really since intensely since the No Child Left Behind legislation, or as a principal in New York City once called it, No Child Left Untested legislation. Right. Um, it, it's been magnified by our Secretary of Education's competition nationwide called Race to the Top, where state departments of education were giving a great deal of money if they went along with the program, combined with this uh, movement toward common core standards, which all of this creates this intensely competitive environment. And we measure children uh, not through their heartbeats, but by spreadsheets, by numerical uh, standard measurements. Widgets. Yeah, exactly. And you know, as you know, all people are unique and diverse and have this innate talent for some gift they can bring to the world. Right. When we put them in, in boxes or we put them on a little uh, spreadsheet or test whatever, it sort of dulls a lot of kids, numbs them out, combined with the competitive nature. And there's no, they, I, can't, I don't want to say definitively, there's no joy, but I see many children in schools who are nervous, who are scared, who are disconnected, and whose needs aren't being met by the yeah. current system. I often refer to those children as they're being squeezed. Yes. And I think that the awareness to that is really what's going to save our generations ahead and our children to be able to unsqueeze them, give them some room so that they can feel and they can deal with their life according to what is stirred up in them and how they handle it and navigate that for them so that we don't end up with a squeezed generation. Right. I think in metaphor all the time because it helps to clarify my, the points for me. Um, it just When you said that, I thought of somebody who's really tight in their muscles and right. they need someone to give them a massage to release the right. tension. Right. But you can't just go in there and release it. It takes work. You know, well, it takes conscience. Right. And emotional safety and the environment has to provide that emotional safety so that that massage can happen. So where can we find more of you? Tell us about some of your books and then we've got to head off to... Okay. L.A. The book I wrote about empathy is called Teaching Empathy. I wrote that book. They wanted me, the publisher, to write an anti-bullying book, and I wanted to write a pro-culture building book. So that was the title, Teaching Empathy. Very nice. I love that title. And and it does, thank you, and it does have some of my music in there. Um, There's another book I wrote called Building Classroom Communities, and and Mm. that's a, a small little book that really emphasizes the whole idea of building an emotionally safe learning environment within your classroom setting. Love it. Um, You know, through relationship building and teaching social skills through our own behaviors as adults with kids. I also have um, created a framework that I use with schools. The consciousness, it's not a program, it's a consciousness, as I always say, and it's called Creating a School of Belonging. And so I wrote a book or a plan book called The School of Belonging Plan Book. Very nice. Um, those are my three like key resources over the last few years, and um, can I give my website here where you those can are? Give it as found? much as you want. Okay. Well, it's my name, David A. Levine dot com, A from Andrew Middle Initial, David A. Levine dot com, and not only you can find those books in the resources, but you can also. Um, read some things I've posted up there about the idea of creating emotional safety in schools. Love it, love it, love it. www.davidalevine.com. All those books are available on there? We could buy them there? 
Yes, if you go there to resources, you'll find all three. All right. And are you on Facebook and Twitter and all those little things? Yes, I am on Facebook. The one is uh, School of Belonging, the Facebook page that okay. I use for this. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for all the hard work you do. You're, you're changing the world, and I think you should be very proud of that. Thank you, Dr. Sophie. Thank that you. means a lot to hear you from you. Really, really great stuff today. I was just on the phone with David Levine, www.davidalevine.com. has a lot of great books on his website, three that he talked about today. Really, really good books. Teaching Empathy, let's read it. we got to read that. We've got to teach our children empathy. We've got to know it ourselves so we can teach it. He also talks about how to build an emotionally safe classroom, so it's a really great uh, book for any educator or any teacher. And we talked a lot about different aspects of empathy, but from a non-scientific standpoint and how he translates the teachings that the scientists like us, me, and my previous guest do in an everyday world with children. And he uses his biggest tool is his music. And it's really interesting. So get onto his website, www.davidalevine.com and really check him out. Lots of good stuff there. Before him, we had Dr. Stephanie Preston. She was uh, or is the assistant professor at the Department of Psychology, uh, University of Michigan. Great work there. She's got a great website, www.personal.umich.edu slash prestos, P-R-E-S-T-O-S slash. Very good stuff. It'll all be on my website if you need it. Again, Dr. Sophie, we talked about empathy and sympathy today. We always want to hear from you, one eight five five sophie now or one eight five five. 767-4966 and every caller will get a copy of my book for free side by side. Thank you to all my listeners and callers for today's show. Podcasts are available on my website at www.drsophie.com Please call me whenever you need to talk. one 855 sophie now or 1-855-767-4966 Again, my book side by side. You can get it off my website or any bookstore. Amazon.com definitely. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook and visit iTunes to download the full version of Andy Grammer's Keep Your Head Up. And please don't forget to sweep. But you got to keep your head up. Oh, and you can let your head down. Hey, you got to keep your head up. Oh, and you can let your head down.